Hi, I'm Julia Adolph, and welcome to Loose Leaf Notebook, where we will explore the connection between creativity and mental health, nurturing artistry, emotional intelligence, and self-care. I'm a composer, and I will be sharing my own personal creative process and journey towards mental health, as well as inviting other artists and creative individuals to share their own inspiring stories with you. Today, I am joined by composer Frank Tekeli. Frank's music has been described by the LA Times as optimistic and thoughtful, and by the New York Times as lean and muscular. His orchestral works are commissioned and performed by orchestras around the world, and his concert band music is considered to be standard repertoire. Today, Frank shares his experience of generalized anxiety disorder which manifested in his 30s in the form of chronic pain and impeded his ability to compose. We discuss how Frank reframed his creative process in order to move through this difficult period and the importance of the subconscious in enhancing creativity. This episode of Loose Leaf Notebook is supported by New Music USA and featured on New Music Box. Hi, Frank. <laughs> hey, Julia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. It's great to see you. I mean, I guess I should call you Professor Tekeli because... No, please, you're my... <laughs> please. No, here, you're Frank. I'm Frank here. You're Julia here. I'm Frank. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited that you're here with me today because, you know, I studied composition with you at USC. Of course, I had a wonderful time at USC and a wonderful creative growth, but I was also dealing with my own mental health challenges. And so I was so encouraged and inspired when you shared with me recently that you have your own story to share. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm glad we're talking about this because we don't talk about it enough. And I think the pandemic, a combination of things has brought it more on the front burner, the pandemic being at the top of that list. And I think, you know, maybe it's been a mistake that I had not talked about my own um, issues with mental health with students, because it might have, you know, I think about it, just talking about my own story might help them to see that, hey, we're all human, we're all in this together. And I didn't do much of that with students. I didn't talk about, I think it's difficult to talk about your own personal problems. We don't want to be defined by them. And I'll also, I come from a generation where we, you know, we didn't talk about our problem, at least, at, or at least I come from a family where we didn't do that, my, my upbringing. So it's never been easy for me to talk about this, um, but I'm happy to, to take a stab at it with you. I was about 34 years old when I was confronted with issues. I was a young professor at USC, had just been hired, but not only hired in this new position, but also composer in residence for the Pacific Symphony. Very high profile, the, uh, lots of press and pressure, uh, at least internal pressure, maybe more internal than external. But I suddenly felt, and moving to a new city, you know, from a fairly quiet environment, I moved to Los Angeles. And I think the combination of all of those factors had a big effect on me. And then, of course, composing a piece, the first piece as composer in residence, a piece called Radiant Voices, a 20-minute orchestra piece. And at some point, I started developing um, chronic pain in the jaw and in the neck. And I just thought it was purely physical. It's just the work. And I kind of blew it off. And it got worse and worse. And it got to the point that I could not... Um, ignore it. I had to confront it. I saw a TMJ person and they did all these tests and everything was normal. And it finally was concluded that 
you know, you're fine phys physically and structurally, everything's fine there. You have anxiety, you're suffering from anxiety and, and was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. And I still didn't believe it. I said, no, it's not, it's this pain. You just, if you could just take away this pain, I'll be fine. With me not understanding that the anxiety was causing the pain, I was certain there was something wrong physically. It couldn't be something like anxiety. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it was just a spiral, a downward spiral. It got worse and worse. The deadline loomed. I barely made the deadline. The premiere happened and it was a big success. But then after it was over, the pain still didn't go away. After all the pressure was released, the, the performance happened. And, and I thought, okay, now everything will be back to normal. And it wasn't. I was still suffering. Uh, poor sleep. Uh, inability to concentrate, lots of jaw pain. I mean, the worst jaw pain you can imagine. And it lasted for quite a while. And when I say quite a while, I mean a number of years. It went on for two or three years and all kinds of medications um, were thrown at me and, some, and none of them worked except for one and that's Xanax. Right. And I took that and then of course that's highly addictive, but it worked. So I started taking that. And once I had calmed down after a, a period of time taking the Xanax, I couldn't get off the Xanax. It took a long time to right. wean myself. And I just did that on my own. I weaned myself and, off the, the Xanax. And Xanax is an anti-anxiety, right? That's right. Okay. But it's not one anyone would recommend for someone with anxiety. It's not the first priority drugs that you would prescribe. It's, it's not an SSRI. No, it has a short half-life, so it wears off quickly. So you have to take it often. And it's, and it's more addictive than most of the other medications. So I had to struggle with that as well. Um, so anyway, I was about your age in my 30s. And I just thought my life, I literally thought my life was over, Julia. It paralyzed me. I stopped composing, almost stopped composing, that is. I didn't, I never really fully stopped, but it, it got to where the anxiety was getting in the way of my ability to think, to be creative, to just simply enjoy thinking a new thought, which is what we do as composers. It was in the way of all of that. And it took a while. It was later in the 90s, around the time um, our first child was born. For whatever reason, everything sort of settled back down to normal. Mm. And, you know, children, this is a cliche, but children make you live in the present because they need you now and right. now and now, always now. And it, it took me out of that sort of anxiety loop and made me just live in the present for the present moment. So I credit that more than anything. Therapy was fine. The medication helped. But more than anything, it was just being forced to live in the moment. Something new in my life that forced me to live in the moment. Mm. And uh, so I always have to, to be uh, aware of that, that I have this tendency. Um, I remember a teacher once saying to me, I was, you know, Frank, you're, very, you're a tightly wound person. You're a high, in, high energy person, high intensity person. That's all code talk for, you know, you're an anxious person, Frank. And uh, so I always have to be aware of that. And, and so if I get any physical symptoms, that's now I know that's a warning sign. Chill. You know, it's time to address this, Frank. It never goes away, but we learn how to cope with it. Also getting older, you learn how, how do I say this? You learn how to just not give a damn as much. Yeah. And yeah. when I say that, I mean, just not take everything so seriously. Getting older helps as well. Well, thank you for being so honest about that. I know it's hard to talk about. It is. And I'm, and I, I'm trying to be as honest as I can because I know how hard it is to be honest about this. We cover up things. I, I feel 
I feel protective walls coming up right now, even as I speak about my own issue. I don't want to be defined by my illnesses. They're there. They're part of something I have to live with, but I don't want to be defined by them. I understand that. When you first started getting this jaw pain um, and it was being suggested by professionals that you had anxiety, what were some of the reasons why you thought maybe, you know, that it could not be anxiety? It's pretty irrational, really. I argued with these physicians who had way more experience with this than I'll ever have. And I just, I think the anxiety was part of it. The anxiety contributed to my disbelief that it was right. anxiety. Right. That's not rational. Right. And it, it takes a while to sort of come around to understand that simply thoughts, because that's all anxiety is. It's a, it's a collection of thoughts, um, negative thoughts that build up and start to have physical effects if you don't confront them. Mm-hmm. And again, I was, I've always been very good at, at denying um, pain and, um, that is mental pain and, and emotional pain, it, sort of just shoving it aside and saying, I can, I'm tough enough to deal with this. It's that whole, again, it's my generation, it's masculinity, the toxic kind um, that sort of shoves that stuff. And so I think that was, to answer your question, that was all behind it, mm-hmm. sort of my upbringing and the anxiety itself combined to create this disbelief. You have to confront the fact that you're just a human being. You're not Superman or Superwoman. And it, it took that realization for me to go see the, those doctors. Yeah. Were you married at the time? Just married. Our 30th anniversary is two weeks from now. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> I imagine your wife was heavily involved in helping you she figure was, out. She was. She was just amazing. And, and I'm not sure I could have gotten through it without her support because I got, it was pretty low for me. I got to where I didn't want to live, which often happens when it gets that bad. And without her support, it would have probably been impossible to get through it all she was never judgmental she was never my therapist um she just listened a lot i guess that's what the best therapists do though she was a very good listener and just this unconditional love um was and i don't want to talk about it too much i'm going to get emotional because you know it was just non-judgmental unconditional love that she provided and, and comfort. And that, when I say that, I mean, that's not just during the day, it's day and night because anxiety doesn't go away at night. When no, it's worse sometimes. Yeah, it's worse sometimes. In fact, m- many times it's worse. So it was not just a day, a day gig. It was day and night for years. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel lucky to have her. Were you having suicidal thoughts? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So not, not to the point that I would ever have, like I wasn't starting to plan it or um, right. figure out strategies, but the thoughts were there that I just don't, don't want to live. I don't, I don't want to live with this, that is with this pain. That I'm, it wasn't that I, I wasn't, it wasn't, I don't want to live. It was, I don't want to live with this. And I couldn't find any way out of this. And I remember saying over and over, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. There was this power, lack of control. Mm-hmm. And uh, I couldn't get, it, again, it's, it's the spiral. I don't know what to do. I kept saying that. And that led towards these thoughts of, I don't want to live either. And that's an important distinction you make about, from my understanding, about having suicidal thoughts that you don't want to live versus actually starting to make, to formulate plans of, of committing suicide. And, and I remember learning that 
it's important to let people talk about their suicidal thoughts and that they're still safe until it gets to that point where there's plans being made. That's when you need to call 911. Um, But is that sort of line up with your understanding? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and as you say, there are different stages of this, but um, anytime anyone talk, if a student were to talk about that, I take it very seriously. I don't, I don't try to figure out what stage they're in. If a student starts talking to me about not, about life not being worth it, or, or even just code messages like, uh, I'm, I feel like I'm sinking, even something like that. I, I like to act, sort of take it a step further and say, what do you mean by that when you say you feel like you're sinking? And they might just say, well, just the weight of so much work, I've got this and I've got that and I feel like I'm sinking. And maybe that's all it is, but I just like to make sure it's not something beyond that. In my experience, they don't just come out and say, I feel like a failure. I feel like dying. They don't usually do that. Right. And so you listen carefully to what they are saying and try to determine whether you need to intervene in some way, because I feel a responsibility as a, t- as a professor to um, stay open to that possibility that students are suffering from some kind of stress-related um, difficulties. Right. I think it's really important that we be, yeah. we be good listeners and, and then offer help if we need to. Did you have um, male friends that you felt comfortable talking with at the time? No. I'm thinking about my best friends. Um, I talked more. I talked about the physical symptoms, but I never talked about the anxiety. That, back in those days, now I do freely. Right. But back then, no, I didn't. That all of that contributed, I think, to that to the intent, intensification of my illness. Was just not talking about it, not creating um, a community of friends. Right. I have. I did have my wife though, but but I didn't talk about it with my friends at all. Right. Okay. So when you first started not feeling well in your thirties, um, mm-hmm. you were already working as a composer and known as a composer at that point, correct? Correct. What were some of the things that your anxiety were telling you? Because it sounds like you know there was a fear of of failure, right, of missing the deadline but you already had success behind you. So how, how did those two worlds kind of collide? Well, it's interesting. What you're asking me reminds me of what a therapist asked me, which is how, what's the worst thing that can happen to you? Why, you know, trying to help with the worry and the anxiety. Um, she said, what's the worst thing that can happen to you that, that you would die? Is that the thing you fear the most? She was trying to put all the worst fears out in the fr- forefront so that we confront them one at a time. And I said, not at all. That's not my worst fear. My worst fear is that I have to live with this physical pain because it was not, it didn't go away. It was right. with me 24 hours a day. At 35, I thought, well, I've, I've done all I could do as a composer. I'm going to have to find something else to do with my life because just the act of sitting in the chair at the desk again started elevating the pain because you're now raising the tension just a little bit and I started to associate the pain with the act of composing. And so it, it just about paralyzed me. And for a while it did. I can remember I was at Yada once, um, Artist Colony mm-hmm. uh, in, um, in New York. And 
I would, and there was a couple, there were a couple of us sit, sitting at the table at dinner after a day's work. And we were whining about our day, about nothing coming. And I was still suffering from the anxiety. This is the mid nineties. And, and this poet, I won't say who it is, but it's his poet was an older poet was sitting across the table from us. And he was just shaking his head like this, not in a way, not, not sort of, Oh, I'm sorry, but almost a rolling the eyes, shaking the head kind of thing. And I just finally said, what, you know, why are you shaking your head at this? You know, we're talking about this terrible day we had here and you're, you're sort of making light of this. And he said, Frank, until you understand that the bad days are a part of the creative process, not, and not just something that you have to accept, but you have to learn to embrace those bad days as a natural part of the process. Until you come to that point, you're not really an artist yet. It was very tough on me. And, but that, those words stayed with me that, okay, so until I've learned to not only accept that I'm gonna have bad days, but to embrace that as a natural part of the creative process, that we have to learn to just accept that pain is a part of life. It's a part of the life of a composer, but it's a part of the life of anyone's life. Right. And until you learn to accept it and embrace it and even celebrate it, which sounds really ironic to celebrate pain, but you do find ways to do that. Look, so sitting at the desk, having a bad day. Okay. I'm going to be ironic here. This is great. I'm having a bad day. This is what's supposed to happen. This means I'm going to have a good day tomorrow, perhaps, or next week, because this crisis is triggering something in my subconscious to take over and work out these problems that my conscious mind can't work out. Crisis will trigger the subconscious mind to work out creative problems in ways the conscious mind can't do it. And it happens through sleep. You'll start solving problems with a piece of music while you're asleep. When you get up from that desk and take a walk and, and sometimes just in an unexpected place, you may be doing something completely un unrelated to composing and a solution will come. And so that, those words from that poet helped me to understand more the creative process. I love how you framed that. You're saying my conscious mind is stuck, which is why I'm having a bad day. So now I need to trust my subconscious. That's right. So I disengage. I'm sure any composer who's listening to this can relate to this that a lot of times we figure out something when we are not sitting at the desk composing doesn't stop when we get up from the desk it's still happening but it's more on a subconscious level and so empowering that letting that process happen happen uh letting the subconscious mind take on a greater role um was was very liberating for me it, it sort of contributed to a uh, a patience that I, that was needed for me. I needed to be more patient. I've heard you use the word patience and courage and faith. I've heard you use those words to describe what it takes to be a composer. And I think it's so interesting because anxiety, for me, I feel like the anxiety tells me in those moments that the bad days are forever. That and that it's it's a, a failure within me that I can't make the peace happen or I can't push through the stuckness. Um, and you need the the faith to trust that that it's going to pass. But yeah, I, I'd love to hear more about what you think 
about patience, courage, faith, and then also how anxiety interferes with connecting with those feelings. Yeah. Well, you put your finger right on it when you said you're having a bad day and and it's you're failing today and it means that you are a failure and that it's always going to happen. I can completely relate to that because I've I've felt that many times. You know, and again, coming back to my wife, she she gets this so much and I'm I'm sure you can relate to this. I'll come in I would come in after a bad day and <clears throat> And this voice that's there is like, I'm not a composer. I'm a phony. I'm a, this is, I'm just so much worse at this than anybody I know. It comes drop by drop for me. I can't seem to get a rhythm going. Um, I didn't get anything done today. And this is just the way I am. I'm a phony. That kind of, I'll come in the house whining like that to my wife. And she's, again, she doesn't ever say, she doesn't argue with me. She just says, I understand. And, and, and I'm sorry you're having a bad day and, and I'll get, and she'll hug me. And then three weeks later, I'll come in the house. My, I say come in the house because my studio's in the backyard. I've got a backyard studio. I'll come in the house and it's like, man, isn't it? It's just so great. To, I just feel so lucky to be a composer. It's a completely different kind of person. It's, it's, it's like this. Our life can be like that. And then she's still, yes, hon, I, that's great. I understand you're having a great day. And she stays like this. She stays just like that to balance my existence like that. And so you put your finger right on it. When we're having a bad day, we tend to think it's just the way it is. And we define ourselves that I'm just a failure. We have to watch out. And you were talking about faith and courage. That's when the faith has to come to play. When you're having that bad day, you have to learn to have faith in yourself. And faith and courage are two sides of the same coin for me. Faith that the good days are going to come, that you're going to overcome this, and then the courage to see that through. They are two sides of the same coin. And where does patience fit in? Yeah, yeah. It's a three-sided coin, isn't it? <laughs> Faith, patience, courage. Yeah, they're all interrelated. I mean, because it's not happening now. Why isn't it happening now? That's, that's impatience. We all, as composers, we all feel that. Right. And we just have to recognize that we have to recognize that impatience and label it for what it is. That's impatience. That's not going to help me. That's not going to help me solve this problem. I have to, to confront this thought with a, with a positive thought. That, okay, it's not working right now. You can say anything negative if you add those two words to the end of the sentence. You can say, I'm just screwing this all up right now. I mean, pick a terrible sentence. Just the most negative thing you can say about yourself. If you add right now, it helps. Mm -hmm. It helps to confront that. And that's where the patience comes in. So how do you cultivate courage and patience and faith? <laughs> you just get older. <laughs> just, just time. It, I, again, just getting older has helped. Am I, am I a calmer person? Not really. I'm still a... a that's just who I am. But you get so much better at, again, at not caring so much. That's the only way I can say it. And I'm not advocating that we don't care. We, can't, we should care about our lives and about music. It's an important thing to care about. It's this beautiful thing we get to do. We're in this business of making beautiful things, period. That's what we do as composers. And we should care about that. 
but you can care too deeply where the word care gets distorted and care starts to become worry. And so you just learn over time to exercise those more positive um, attributes, faith, courage, and patience. They start to replace impatience, a lack of faith. And the opposite of courage is, is um, anxiety to me. Mm, courage is not the absence of fear, it's confronting the fear and still going forward. Right. And when you don't have that, the anxiety will take over. I mean, it's interesting you say that anxiety and courage are opposites. I, I've had to learn that um, I can be courageous and anxious at the same time. Yes. Because, you know, I, my anxiety started as a young child, you know, when I was eight. So I've had it always. And mm-hmm. so I've always thought of myself as an anxious person. And mm-hmm. so that made me think that I could not, therefore, be brave or courageous Um, So I've had to sort of embrace that you can be both simultaneously. That's really wonderful what you're saying. Um, Yeah, you have something you've dealt with all your life. So you've had practice dealing with it. You know that anxiety is something that you're not cured of. We're never going to be cured of that. We learn to recognize it, though. And we learn warning signs. And that's, again, where time and getting older helps. You've had a lot of practice with this. So you probably have your, I don't know what they are for you. You must have your warning signs and you recognize them and you, you, you get to work on countering those warnings, you know, on, on recognizing and giving them respect. Yeah. There. That's part of our survival mechanism is to, those warning signs are part of that, I think. Yeah, and yeah. having a partner, you know, like your wife um, or a friend uh, help you recognize them is important too. Because it's hard when you're first, dealing with it because it's just so habitual and um, so much a part of your daily routine. It's hard to see it as a warning sign sometimes. Ah, You're absolutely right. You can't, it's not so easy what you're saying. It's not always easy. Okay. There's a warning sign, but let me finish this first. Then I'll deal with that warning sign. (laughs) Yeah, we have, yeah, we have to get that. We have to constantly practice mindfulness. And uh, that's really what you're talking about. It's mindfulness, this being aware of this, this mortal, finite self that we occupy. And it brings me, it reminds me of this wonderful book that I just read. It's a great book. It's by Oliver Berkman, and it's called 4,000 Weeks, which is about how long we're on this planet. We're on this planet for about 4,000 weeks. And, and this book is really on living a meaningful life. What we're going to do with ourselves during these 4,000 weeks. It's partly talking about uh, overcoming procrastination, but it also is talking about being a good procrastinator, choosing what you're going to procrastinate on. Because we, we all have these goals that we're never gonna meet. We can't meet all our goals. And so it's, the book is talking about finding out what you value the most, literally prioritizing your life and embracing your finitude. And, and doing things for their present value rather than for some future reward. That is, I am at the gym doing bench presses so that someday this small chest is going to be a larger chest. That's thinking about the future rather than just being at the gym and just enjoying this. Okay, it's just me and these weights, nothing else in the world right now, just me and you. And just enjoying that motion and the exercise right now. And the same thing can be applied to composing. 
rather than I'm writing this piece for the New York Philharmonic and it's got a deadline here and oh, is it going to be good enough for them? Oh, I'm not. And then the other voice, I'm not even, I don't even deserve this commission. All those negative voices come in because you're thinking about that, that, that future date when it's going to premiere rather than just enjoying creating this beautiful phrase that you're trying to create right now. Do you have any advice or suggestions for how artists can cultivate their subconscious? It just means staying, again, I'm bringing the word mindful comes to mind. It just means staying mindful of the, the creative process, respecting it and loving the creative process so that you are still open to new thoughts and new ideas when you're not sitting there at the desk working on the piece. Mm. I think some of the best things happen when you're not at the desk. And also some of, some of my best ideas happen as a mistake, just to literally my hand played the wrong thing that I was gonna, I was gonna go play A and what came out was B on the piano and I like B better. You know, my, my pinky slipped and there's this, there, oh, I like that note right there. Staying open to that. That's not so much subconscious, but it's related to it. It's staying open to the things that aren't planned. Right. We could plan forever. We could pl we can have a whole form chart worked out, um, have everything figured out and have the ideas. We have the mood figured out and we, and then yet still it may not work. And you have to stay open to those surprises that can happen that we don't expect. That's some of the best part of composing. And that's a subconscious, partly a subconscious thing. And it's partly something that I can't explain. It just happens. We become just this, this vehicle that it sounds like Stravinsky on the vehicle through which the rite of spring came. But we are, we're sometimes just a vehicle and something, and, the, and sometimes our best ideas come from a place that we don't understand. We don't know where it came from. That's subconscious. Yes, and it's it's exhilarating and it's also terrifying because it's it's the realization that even your own work is out of your control. Um, <laughs> like even your own music has a mind of its own. And for me, at least with anxiety, you know, I I I like to have control over things, and that's something that helps me feel safe. And when I don't, which is basically all the time, right? But <laughs> I, I like to tell myself, you know, that I have control over things, but a lot of times music forces you to realize that you don't. And I feel like that's part of the struggle too. Boy, you and I are so similar in that way. I mean, you said it, uh, I want to be in control of things. What we're constantly doing is org organizing this chaos, right? We want to control it. We have to, as composers, at some point we have to. So you're, you're putting your finger on it yet again. It's that we have to temper that need to be in control with an openness to let things happen that are out of our control. Yeah. And it's another thing I'm loving about the current generation. They are embracing that very thing, giving up control. You know, they're, they're embracing more improvisation and uh, creating an environment into which the performers will contribute a greater role in that, in, in the creation of that, of the, mm. the work of art. I think that's a wonderful thing, actually. So you're it's, noticing a shift? 
shift towards oh, that? Yes, absolutely. I'm not saying everybody's doing that, but there's certainly been a huge shift towards the giving up controls of all kinds, pitch, rhythm, even duration. And that's been around a long time, right? You, we can go back and, I mean, look at Terry Riley's in C, right? He's just a bunch of licks, everybody go. He showed us, he's one of many who showed us ways to give up control. And I see that the pendulum swinging back again. I mean, that piece was what, early 60s. That piece was written a long time ago. Right. And, and the pendulum has come back to that in different ways mm. with the current generation. And I mm. find that really exhilarating. Yeah. It balances that, that notion that the composer is an, is an almighty sort of almost like a deity in control of this piece of music. I love how it sort of challenges that, that mythos. Right, because that mythos is part of what makes it crippling to to keep working. I agree. I heard in an interview that you you mentioned that the first eight measures of an American elegy came to you in a dream. They did. I'd love the to hear the whole thing, the harmony, the instrument, everything is there. Can you give us the context of an American elegy and how that came about? Sure. Uh, well, it was. Uh... A commission offer that came to me in the wake of the terrible shooting tragedy at, at Columbine High School. Um, uh, the kids at that that same morning were playing one of my works in the, in the, the high school band there were playing one of my works. And um, it was a kid's idea. They wanted to commission a work to um, honor their friends who were injured or killed during that terrible tragedy. So it came from the kids themselves. Lots of other people got involved. There's an organization that got involved, but it came from those kids. And that made it really special to me. And they said to me that when I accepted it, at first I didn't accept it. I didn't, I felt like, who am I to even presume to understand the pain they were going through? I don't even want to touch this, but they flew me there. I met the, the people in the community and, and immediately, Upon meeting those people, I realized I had to write this piece. So an American elegy came out of that terrible tragedy uh, of 1999, the Columbine shooting tragedy. And the kids said, we don't want to, we would hope you would write a piece that doesn't celebrate or relive that tragedy, but rather uh, uh, write a piece that offers us hope. And so that's all they said to me. They wanted a piece that was somehow... Uh, an expression of hope. And that was my inspiration for the piece. Yeah, and so again, at, at first I did what I always do, which is sit at the piano and nothing's there, right? You're having right. That, nothing happens in the beginning, right? And we feel like a charlatan at the beginning, right? And that's what was happening. It was a lot of pain at first. Like, I can't find this, this hope, but I don't want it to be a naive hope. I want it to also be conscious of the fact that this terrible thing happened and there's, you know, we have to sort of be mindful of that and ha there, there's an anger there and there's, there's a lot of emotions mixed there. I wanted that to be there and yet hope was at the forefront. I couldn't find it. And then I had that dream. But out of, it was out of the anxiety again. I went to bed thinking about it and the whole thing came, the whole uh, first eight bars came to me. The melody, harmony, rhythm, every instrumentation, it was all there. And in the dream, I was walking around looking at each player's. I can see the instruments in the dream. It was the most bizarre thing. You could see the music, or what are you saying? In the, it's, I've never had this. Ha I've, I have dreamed 
music in the past, but I'd never had a dream like this one for American Elegy, where I was in the dream walking around looking at each player's part and watching the players play their instruments and internalizing that and then waking up and then quickly writing it down. I'd never wow. had that happen before. And it was just the first half of the, the melodies twice as long. It was just the first half of the main theme that I got. So I had to write the other half when I was awake. You know, so I've got the, the, the subconscious half and the conscious half of the melody. That's incredible. It's an incredible gift. Yeah, it felt like a gift that came to me. Yeah. And it comes back to what we said. We don't know where things, I don't know where that came from. It just came. I'm not even, I'm not a very deeply religious person. So I'm not going to go there. But it does make you wonder what, how it makes you think that there are things going on in this universe that we'll never be aware of and never be able to explain. None of us had any idea that that was the beginning of this nightmare in our, our country. I mean, we're right here in the wake of another terrible shooting that just happened in, in Uvalde, Texas. And, uh, and someone will contact me and say, we're playing your American Elegy, Frank, in honor of these kids or in honor of the next shooting or the previous one. And I'm flattered they would use my piece, but I am sad that the situation makes it so. Have you noticed increased anxiety in your students in recent years? I mean, you, you touched on how, you know, these kinds of mass shootings are becoming, um, I don't want to say normal, but they're becoming uh, constant. Yeah. Um, I think, yes, I don't know if there's more anxiety. It's just more out in the open. Okay. Um, but yeah, and you said, you said normal and then you said not normal regarding the shootings. They have become no normal actually. And that's tragic that we have to keep doing this yeah. over and over again. Yeah. It's wonderful that we as composers can offer music in a way that heals that provides hope. We don't have an obligation to do that. We have no obligations as composers. It's just one thing we can do. Music has that power. And I think it's a wonderful, one of the most wonderful gifts that music brings to us. Yeah. Um, it, in a way, offers a truth that transcends anything that can happen in, in, in politics, and in um, you know just day-to-day -day life. How do you discern when a student is struggling, maybe has anxiety and has some self-confidence issues versus when maybe they need extra support or help or maybe they need to see the school psychologist? How do you kind of discern and know when to speak up? Again, I feel like this current generation of students, they are better at realizing when they need outside help than certainly than I was when I was their age. And I just really admire that in them. And so, yes, one has to constantly be aware, not only of the music they're creating, but where it's coming from. You have to look at the whole person when you're dealing with a, a student composer one-on-one. -on -one. It, it requires a lot of listening, about learning to shut up and not talk so much in a lesson and let the student do, do more of the, uh, of the talking. And also it's about constantly pointing the student to where, where they are succeeding in a piece of music, rather than always pointing to the problems, this, this won't work, if that's not working or I see trouble, you go back to what is working. 
this is working. This is something to really celebrate and do it. And not just once, but do it over and over again. Every week, I try to keep coming back in a different way, coming back to something that's working in a student's work. To me, it's, it offers another point of view that balances the negative voices. You know, we're constantly facing that blank page is always there. I try not to spend too much time on the blank page, what the student still has to do. And I look at what they have done. And from there, that helps inspire them to fill up that next blank page. Well, I'm really grateful to you for sharing your story today because it does help. Um, it does help others to know that, you know, it's, it's such a common experience and that, you know, you can be a celebrated, established professor, composer, and still be a human person, right? right. <laughs> um, so thank you for being so honest today. It was not easy, but it's my pleasure to do that. And I thank you for what you're doing, Julia. And if uh, listeners want to uh, hear your music or connect with you, where can they go? My website's fine, franktakelly.com, but it's, you know, it's YouTube and all those usual places. I'm so grateful to Frank Tickelly for being so open about his experiences. Frank's story is an important reminder that there are many ways that mental health challenges can emerge and manifest in our body. And it is so important to listen to ourselves and listen to what our body has to say. He also reminds us that there are many ways to approach and move through these challenges. And medication and therapy does not necessarily work for every single person. I think what Frank makes clear, though, is that talking to someone you trust and having a team to support you, a team of loved ones, is what helps all of us feel like we are not alone and stay grounded as we strive to feel well. So thank you, Frank, for joining us today, and thank you for listening. This episode of Loose Leaf Notebook is supported by New Music USA and featured on New Music Box. Thank you for listening to Loose Leaf Notebook. I'm Julia Adolph, and the music you are hearing is my orchestral work, Dark Sand Sifting Light, performed by the New York Philharmonic with Alan Gilbert conducting. If you'd like to hear some more of my music, you can visit my website at juliaadolf.com or my YouTube channel, which also has video versions of all of these podcasts. Thanks again. <laughs>